From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I didn't want to try to add to the body of journalism or, or sort of authorism towards uh, White House intrigue or trying to understand the psychology of Donald Trump. I thought an undertold story of these years was the enablers, were the people who allowed Donald Trump to happen. That's Mark Leibovich. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he specializes in U.S. politics. He was previously the chief national correspondent for The New York Times Magazine. Leibovich is widely regarded as one of Washington's keenest observers. His in-depth analysis of D.C.'s most powerful players is the subject of his latest book, Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. It is an unsparing look at the Republican politicians who enabled the former president to remake the GOP in his own image. We discussed Trump's viability as a candidate in 2024, whether Joe Biden should run for a second term, and November's most highly charged midterm races at the state and national level. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Now let's get to your questions. So I'm recording this on Wednesday morning, August 31st. And the question I've been getting a lot over the last number of hours is my reaction to the brief filed by the DOJ late last night. You may remember that Donald Trump and his legal team, such as it is, filed a motion asking for a special master to be appointed in connection with the search of Mar-a-Lago and certain other relief. And the Department of Justice was required to respond by yesterday. And we wondered when that brief would come. And it came just a few minutes before midnight, just beating out the deadline. You may have heard also that the Department of Justice did something kind of unusual. Usually in cases like this, before that particular judge and that particular court, briefs can't be longer than 20 pages. In this case, DOJ asked if it could use 40 pages. They came in a few minutes before midnight at a clean 35 pages. So five pages to spare. And that's not the important part. The important part is what arguments they made and what facts they laid out. A lot of people predicted, I think correctly, that it may have been a legal mistake or a tactical mistake for the Trump folks to ask for relief, which was kind of late anyway, coming two weeks after the search itself, when the documents had already been seized, already been likely reviewed, and already been likely filtered. And the reason they said that was the motion by Trump and his uh, lawyers would prompt a potentially detailed response that would be more damning for the former president. And I and others who said that were absolutely correct. One thing in the brief that's getting a lot of attention is an attachment. 
And the attachment shows a number of documents that remained at Mar-a-Lago that FBI agents found and seized that very plainly show red and yellow colored cover pages, the red one saying secret slash SCI, and the yellow one saying top secret slash SCI. So on their face, highly sensitive, classified markings located on the documents had not been turned over before, despite, as we've described, incredible accommodation, patience, and extensions given to the president and his team to turn over these presidential records. Among other things, by the way, DOJ argues, Trump has no basis and no standing to contest anything with respect to the search and the handling of those documents because they don't belong to him. They're presidential records that don't get to remain with someone when they're the former president. But I found another attachment to be the most interesting thing in this motion. A few days ago, I was asked by Wolf Blitzer when I did an appearance on CNN when the affidavit was partially unsealed, mostly redacted, partially unsealed. And he said, is there anything that disappoints you with respect to these redactions? And I said, you know, I'm not really disappointed because as a citizen, as a former prosecutor, I want to make sure that the integrity of the investigation is preserved, that a roadmap is not given to people who are under investigation, that witnesses are not at risk and won't be harmed. But I said, the one thing that I would have liked to have seen, and I couldn't think of a reason why we wouldn't see it in the unredacted affidavit, was confirmation of the reporting by the New York Times, Maggie Haberman and others, which said that a lawyer for the former president of the United States had signed a sworn certification after accommodations were granted, after a subpoena was issued, signed a sworn certification that all the documents asked for had been returned and none remained. And we didn't see that in the underdacted affidavit. I'm not sure why, but we see it set forth in black and white in this legal memorandum, this legal brief by the Department of Justice. And I think this is incredibly important because it provides a basis and a justification for all of us, not just the court, but all of us to understand why they had to take the aggressive step of getting a search warrant. Because they tried again and again and again to get the documents, asking for them politely, collecting some documents, issuing a subpoena, visiting Mar-a-Lago. By the way, as the brief also points out, when certain agents went to Mar-a-Lago, they weren't allowed to search in all the places where some of these documents were. And DOJ's brief actually attaches the signed certification letter. It doesn't say who signed it, but it says it's a lawyer for the president. And it says, and I think this is important, so bear with me. Based upon the information that has been provided to me, that's a lawyer saying based upon the information that has been provided to me, presumably by Trump himself and others. So he's hedging a little bit, right? He says, I am authorized to certify on behalf of the office of Donald J. Trump the following. And among the things he certifies to is that a diligent search was conducted of the boxes that were moved from the White House to Florida, which seems to encompass all of the boxes that were moved from the White House to Florida. B, this search was conducted after receipt of the subpoena in order to locate any and all documents that are responsive to the subpoena, and certainly anything classified or marked classified would have been responsive to the subpoena. And the certification goes on to say, and this is maybe the most critical, D, no copy, written notation, or reproduction of any kind was retained as to any responsive document. So that picture is worth a thousand words, as they say, but that is so in juxtaposition with this signed certification letter in which a direct representative, legal representative of the former president says, we don't got any more. We gave it all to you. None has been retained. And then they go in with a search warrant and they find that that's false, that it was a lie. Who's at fault for that lie? Well, we'll have to see what the facts tell us, but it's not good for the former president. With respect to the issue of obstruction, if someone says they gave stuff to you and it turns out that was not true, the implication is that was intentional and designed to interfere with a, an appropriate legal process. So that, I think, is devastating 
and I'm not quite sure why it wasn't in the unredacted affidavit, but we have it now. As for the special master, I disagree with some of my colleagues and friends who are very, very stridently opposed to the appointment of a special master. I think the government is correct. The former president doesn't really have standing. It's in any event moot because the documents have already been filtered. But even the government in this brief is not particularly aggressive about the special master. They say things like, a special master would be unnecessary. A special master is quote-unquote disfavored in this context. At the end of the day, you know, maybe it causes some delay. Maybe it's a little bit silly because the work has already been done. But I don't think it's the most important thing in the world with respect to this matter. The most important thing is the evidence of obstruction and likely the knowledge and intent of the former president in keeping these documents after repeated legitimate requests to give them back. We'll be right back with my conversation with Mark Leibovich. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. Mark Leibovich's incisive analysis of the personalities, politics, and theatrics that drive Washington culture is often at the center of his profiles of the country's top elected officials. His latest effort pulls back the curtain on Republican standard bearers, including Kevin McCarthy, Lindsey Graham, and other powerful figures in the GOP who have shown unwavering support for Donald Trump. Mark Leibovich, welcome to the show. Great. It's great to be with you. So you reminded me before we started recording, that you and I share a literary agent. We do. Our friend, Elise Cheney. No relation to the famous Cheneys, 
Am I correct? I, I don't. I don't know of any relation. Although I would like to think that after we make Elise so famous, um, <laughs> the people will talk. Will, will mention Liz Cheney and Dick Cheney in connection with how she is no relation to Elise Cheney. So I should point out, Elise did a great job. We both had top five New York Times bestselling books. Yours did a little bit better. I'm going to give you that. <laughs> Who's counting? Your, yours says number one on it. So you wrote a book called Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. That's a play on admission, I guess. Um, yeah, actually it is. I, you okay. Know, I, I, I <laughs> did you not realize that? that? No, I did. It, it sounded, um, it sounded <laughs> cheeky at the time. I guess, I guess admission is, it is a play on admission, but yeah, for the price of, yeah, this is, yeah, it's just too clever for my, I, I can't even like keep up. With do you want me to tell you more things about your own book? Please do. Yeah. I mean, I would like to forget about it. No, let's, we're going to come back to, we're going to come back to your book and the title because I have a question about it. But, but the other thing that occurred right before we began taping is I asked you where you are. And you said you are in Washington, D.C. as we tape this interview. And I said, oh, is that the scene of future violence? And you said, well, that depends on whether or not the DOJ does the right thing. And I thought that is an intriguing answer. Provocative, and right? And worrisome. What did you mean by that? Well, I, I mean it um, in great jest for, well, not, not in jest because there's nothing funny about it, but I, I think in the context of recent public remarks by us, particularly Lindsey Graham, um, one of the presidents or the former president's sort of top sort of signature sycophants, um, he has suggested or said explicitly a few days ago that he thought that if there's a prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information after the Clinton debacle, which you presided over and did a hell of a good job, there'll be riots in the streets. And it sounded a whole lot like intimidation. So basically, there will be riots. I mean, this was that is the sort of line of the week, and Lindsey Graham should know better, and hopefully that it doesn't come to that, and hopefully, I, I assume the Department of Justice will not in any way be influenced by that, but it's certainly a troublesome thing for a public official to say, especially someone... Uh, so close to the president, so close to the former president, but also former chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, someone of Lindsey Graham's prominence, he obviously should know better. And in your mind, there's no doubt that that was meant as kind of a threat rather than an observation? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, you know, only Lindsey Graham can speak to that. I mean, it was wildly irresponsible, I'd say that. I mean, I, it's the kind of thing that certainly could be taken as a threat. And Donald Trump immediately seized on it and retweeted it or retruth social did or whatever the right word is now for whatever it is he does. Uh, he called a lot of attention to it. And, um, you know, it's a very serious subject. So I, 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 I certainly took it seriously. Whether you call it a threat or not, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess the other word you can use when the former president talks about it is exhortation. Is it yeah. Is it guidance to his to his base? Well, I mean, there is precedent for that, too. If you look at January 6th, if you look at, um, you know, a lot of public comments that he has made that has, you know, rather quickly incited some activity, some potentially violent and criminal activity from his supporters. So, yeah, I mean, I remember when I was reporting the book, Mitt Romney said to me, he said, one of the things that the first thing you learn in politician school is don't say something that's going to inflame the random nut out there, right? And 
Uh, Donald Trump never got the random nut memo. Um, you could argue that inciting the mob or the sort of the the notion of a mob that can be activated whenever the president decides to tweet something or say something is is a dangerous thing but it's also an asset or something that he sees as a tool in his arsenal um that again is is kind of the definition of uh you know authoritarianism in some ways it's it's leading by intimidation it's it's certainly not politics by debate or persuasion it's it's sort of you know, putting fear into the public domain. I want to go back to your, to the book title. I said, I was going to ask you a question about it. So first question is, tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book. And number two, when you say Donald Trump's Washington and the price of submission, I'm not quite aware of what that price has been for anyone who has submitted. Um, that's a great question. I mean, I, I would say sort of, to sort of so backing up, I mean, why did I write the book? I mean, I, I always thought living through the Trump years, which is a story I never loved. I never loved the Trump story, and people would come up to me and and other Washington reporters over these years and say, "Oh, you must be on cloud nine. There's so much to write about, and there's so much, you know, colorful stuff, and there's so much in the news." And um, I, I did not like these years as far as being a journalist goes. It was not fun to be among the enemy of the people. It was menacing. Um, a lot of the norms that we had been accustomed to uh, were just sort of blown up in ways that I don't think were as positive as many of Donald Trump's supporters would have thought. So, um, But I did want to write a book. I, I wanted to write a book on the Trump years, but I didn't want to write a book about Trump. I, I didn't want to try to add to the body of journalism or, or sort of authorism towards uh, White House intrigue or trying to understand the psychology of Donald Trump. I thought an undertold story of these years was the enablers, were the people who allowed Donald Trump to happen, who allowed him to be rehabilitated from any number of just, you know, the abominations of presidential behavior. And that ostensibly became the Republican party. So this was a book about the people who knew better. This was a book about Lindsey Graham. This is a book about Kevin McCarthy. It's a book about Mitch McConnell, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, go down the list. And essentially the Republican party became the party of surrender to Donald Trump. And this is what we have today. And surrender, you know, so submission is sort of part of the same equation. Yeah. But what's been the price for any of those people? Um, you know, that's a great question. I, I think I would say their dignity. I would say their party. I would say their country. Now they would say, well, those are things well, that maybe not everyone values anymore. Correct. I mean, maybe they would say that, you know, Mark, get off your high horse, you know, get over yourself, all of that stuff. Um, you know, the truth is, um, Kevin McCarthy wants to be speaker of the house. He is paying a price, you know, in, in the sort of day-to-day -day misery of trying to play, placate Donald Trump. And, um, you know, and I describe this quite a bit in the book. I mean, being around him is not a fun proposition. I mean, he does not look like he's having fun trying to uh, ward off the next Donald Trump tantrum every day or deal with like, you know, whatever blow up or whatever, you know, acting out he has to deal with on a day to day basis. So uh, I think there is a price. I think there's a psychic price. And I think it's, it's sort of, you know, obviously it's case by case, but I think it's a big, big price. There's a lot of things that people talk about with respect to the evolution of media and the influence they have. But something you said recently, I've been thinking about. And that is, I suppose once upon a time, uh, politicians wouldn't like any media outlet 
particularly one that had a lot of subscribers or was respected in some circles, even if it was a little bit progressive versus a little bit conservative. And, you know, in my experience, uh, having been in, you know, offices that politicians have run, mm-hmm. or at least one, they don't like bad press. I know there's some people who say, you know, no press is bad press, but for the most part, people don't like it. And in recent times, I wonder if that principle still holds true. And the reason I'm mentioning it is you said, as this book was being reported on and talked about, that you would give someone a heads up and say, for example, with respect to Lindsey Graham, his communications person, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say that, he's not going to like it, uh, you're not going to like it. And you said your reaction was, or their reaction was, they could not have been more sort of, and this is your phrase, proudly indifferent mm-hmm. to what the Atlantic was going to write. <laughs> is that a new thing? Explain that to me. It, it proudly was indifferent. Fr- proudly indifferent. No, I mean, I don't know if they were just play acting for me just to sort of, they, they didn't want to give me the satisfaction of um, showing me that I was I was annoying them or scaring them or something. But no, I mean, I, I think, yeah, so I had this conversation. Um, I, I mean, Kevin McCarthy's communications person and Lindsey Graham's communications person are the two people I had this conversation with uh, right before we published an excerpt from the book in The Atlantic, where I now work. So uh, essentially, they were the two main characters in this excerpt. It was pretty damning. Um, You know, I I didn't spare a lot of, um, I think, sarcasm, ridicule, scorn, whatever, whatever word you want to use. And they, um, yeah, neither of them, they were just like, well, yeah, okay, fine. You know, whatever. I mean, part of it is just like, they don't want to pay any respect to the Atlantic. It's like, we don't care what the Atlantic says in, in South Carolina or, you know, Kevin McCarthy's caucus. They don't read the Atlantic, but, but also there, there was an element of, yeah, just spell his name right. Or in Lindsey Graham's case, his communications person was like, yeah, whatever you do, just please make sure you point out that Lindsey Graham and president Trump talk all the time. They golf (laughs) together all the time. Right. You know, that's the only message I really care about because I mean, that's the only message you know, I think a lot of Lindsey Graham's potential supporters in South Carolina are going to take from it. I mean, it, it, and Lindsey Graham gets a lot of cosmic and political value out of being seen as a confidant of the former president. But isn't their analysis somewhat correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how many people who, how many people read The Atlantic who don't already not like Donald Trump? Yeah, probably. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, look, I don't, I, I, my concern in giving the heads up is, a couple things. I mean, one, I certainly want to fact check anything that could be wrong. I want to have a last round of conversations with, with the people who, you know, can, can correct the record before I actually put it on the record. But the other thing is just to sort of make sure that, that they know that they're not surprised, but yeah, sure. If your calculation is like the number of the, with the Venn diagram between people in South Carolina who will vote in a Republican primary versus, you know, the subscriber list to the Atlantic, um, there's probably not a very big overlap. And even if there was, I don't think Lindsey Graham would care or his communications person would care. Uh, same was true of the New York Times when I worked there before. I mean, they're, they're fully cognitive of, you know, they know that they have different audiences and there are different, you know, people that they're talking to depending on who they're, uh, you know, what the conversation is, who the reporter is and so forth. But no, I mean, I, I thought that the, the, the indifference in their, in this, in this context was sort of a weapon in some ways. I mean, I didn't care about it, but that seemed to be the tone of it. Is Donald Trump as a political brand and as a viable candidate on the wane? We've been hearing that a lot, and we're recording this on Tuesday, August 
30th, I think, yeah. in advance of the Thursday publication of the podcast. And one data point, Ann Coulter, to the extent that she has influence among conservatives anymore, I think has pronounced Donald Trump done. Hmm. Is he is he waning? Is he um, treading water? Is he growing? What's his status um, as a as a dynamic political figure in America at the moment? I think it continues to be monumental, and and I think the reason for that is he's the clear front runner to be the Republican nominee in twenty twenty four, and no one is standing up to him to this day. You know, he's in all kinds of legal jeopardy, which we all know about, um, financial jeopardy, reputational jeopardy. I mean, he makes a fool of himself in, you know, 10 different ways, new ways, you know, every week these days. Um, and yet no one pushes back on him. The the sort of dear leader dynamic remains the prevailing one. And, you know, yeah, maybe a lot of people are sick as hell of him. Um, and a lot of them are Republican elected officials. But if they don't say anything... That gives him the strength that he needs to carry on and probably be the nominee of his party, which immediately makes him one of two people um, most likely to be elected president in 2024. So to me, that's a pretty powerful brand. And, and yeah, obviously others could disagree with me, but I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. What percentage of Republican senators do you think wish he would go away? Um, probably about 90 90. Yeah. And do they say that to you? No. I mean, some of them privately say, I mean, a lot of them have in many ways sort of said we have to move on, but no, they don't. I mean, it'd be politically very, um, uh, damaging to them to say that publicly in most cases. I mean, I think Mitt Romney and some other Republican senators have said that, but very few others have, but no, I, I've, I've asked this question of a lot of Republicans, um, in the house and Senate, uh, over the last few years, especially when I was reporting the book, which was if the impeachment vote, the second impeachment vote were a private ballot, um, how many votes for impeachment do you think there would have been, or a secret ballot, how many votes for impeachment do you think there would have been among Republicans? And and I, I think certainly there would have been a vote for conviction in the Senate and probably close to maybe 100, 150 in the House, maybe more. Um I mean, you have to, I mean, the, the level of almost unanimity in these private conversations compared to what you hear in public um, is, is pretty striking. It would strike anyone who sort of saw the duality between those two. So is he running again? Sure. Why not? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't think why, I, I mean, that's sort of what Donald Trump is going to do. I mean, if, if he doesn't, you know, I assume, you know, there are any number of reasons why he could choose not to, but no, I, he's given every indication that he is going to run again, that he wants to run again, that he should be president already. So, you know, maybe he resents having to run again. Didn't he just say in the last day or two that he needs to be reinstated and we need a do-over? Yeah, and I don't know how that's going to work, but I mean, haven't heard any Republicans object to that. So when is this do-over? I mean, will it be will it run in conjunction with the midterms? I mean, logistically, it's it's very challenging. On the other side of the coin, you have the current president, about whom you've been pretty vocal on the issue of whether or not he should run again, Joe Biden. And you say he sh not only should he not, but he should announce that forthwith? Forthwith. I think so. I mean, you know, again, I mean, President Biden has not asked me my opinion, but I think it would be a it would be a great thing. I mean, one, he I think he's too old. I, I don't think, you know, I think he's been effective lately. Okay. Before we go before we get to the substance of it, what about the timing? Doesn't the timing matter? Is it your view? If you were advising Joe Biden, both for purposes of future Democratic success and or his legacy 
and or what's best for the country. And those are slightly different considerations. Yeah. Would you say he should announce today, wait till after the midterms or some other time? Um, after the midterms. Why not? I mean, I think, you know, the, the, I think the midterms should probably be about, you know, it should be seen as a referendum on him. I, I think people are going to be focused on congressional and Senate candidates between now and November, and there'll be plenty of time afterwards to sort of reset and sort of reevaluate where the country is after this next round of elections. And um, look, I, I think Joe Biden seems to have had an extremely productive year. And, and I think, you know, if you sort of start the calendar after, say, the beginning of 2023, um, it would be a great opportunity to sort of throw open the field to a whole new um, generation of democratic voices, younger voices, hopefully. And um, I think it could be a pretty dynamic moment for for the country and for the party and also send a message that the that the party is is one, the Democratic Party is one that is not afraid of its future and, and ready to sort of, um, you know, talk about who it wants to be going forward. You know, you have an interesting verbal pattern. Can mm. I mention it to you? Please, yeah. You will answer questions, you've done it two or three times already, mm -hmm. with why not? Suggesting that you're not as thoughtful about the question as I know you are. Huh. Does that make any sense? Interesting. So I, Are you trying to hide your thoughtfulness, Mark? <laughs> I don't know if I have much to hide there. I mean, I think, why not? No, no why not? That's interesting. Well, it's very I, unusual. People don't really, you know, I've asked you multiple questions, and it's not a bad it's sort of like every time you get asked a question, you're encouraging a thought experiment, which is, well, why not? And forcing the other party to consider, well, yeah, why not? That's the way you should, is that how you analyze things or am I overanalyzing you already? No, I, can I, first of all, can I just step out of our conversation? I yeah. mean, you, I keep taping it by all means. I don't care. I mean, this is a great thing you've just done. I have never had an interviewer, <laughs> no, I've never had an interviewer just sort of step out of himself or herself and actually observe the patterns. Uh, I mean, it shows like a great listening skill and great acuity. And uh, I feel seen in some ways. And now I feel a little self-conscious. So um, well, that was the I, goal. Well, well, put it, you it, back on your no, heel. And, no, and by the way, you know, you know, my why not? Why not, Mark? Well, <laughs> it's, I'm not back on my heels, though. No, I'm actually thinking, oh, okay. is this a good thing or a bad thing? Should no, I it's a very good thing. It? I, but it's it's noticeable, at least to me, it's noticeable. It could read as dismissive or glib. I, I but I know it's not because <laughs> because I know you and your writings, right? So, so it's not that. I've been accused of being dismissive and glib at times. Um, but yeah, no, I think that that's really interesting. I mean, it actually, it's funny because it's very, I think conversationally, it's, it's how I handle things. Like, you know, we're obviously on the air now, so I'm choosing my words a little more carefully, theoretically than I, I would in a normal conversation. But, um, I do think the sort of why not thing, and this doesn't, this isn't a defense, it's just sort of an observation. It, it is, um, there's something dynamic about it. I think, I think, it is something that tries to entertain the question, but also tries to entertain the um, the opposite, the the alternative. I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm trying to spin this beyond what is just an annoying verbal tick that I have to lose immediately. But anyway, it's an interesting observation. So I applaud you for making it. Maybe it's Kennedy-esque. Some I things see things ask. as they are and ask why. <laughs> Mark Leibovich sees things That's as they wrong. might be and asks, why not? Why not? <laughs> I can I can yeah. write I can write for you, Mark. That's terrific. I like so it. So you say Biden gets out and there's this torrent of young, fresh, energetic political blood. 
I want to challenge you on that for in a moment. But if Biden had not been in the race or he had lost the primaries in 2020, was there another Democrat who could have beaten Trump? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. I, I thought, I think. Well, um, that has some bearing on, on your advice. Again. Correct. Um, so I guess the question is, would there be an alternative to him now? I mean, I guess the voters, the Democratic Well, that's voters, my next question. And who right. might that be? Why not? If not him, who? Um, <laughs> you know, if I, not I, us, who, right? If not now, when? I would say this. Um, if Democrats do well in some of these Senate races, there oh. could be some national figures emerging from some of those races who could conceivably be people running immediately. I mean, I think... I mean, I don't, I don't want to be one of those horse race people, but hey, we're going to do some not? horse race. We're going to do some not? horse race. Why not? Uh, John why not? Fetterman, Tim Ryan, if he wins, Mandela Barnes, if, if he wins, um, you know, Val Demings, if she wins. I mean, these are all pretty um, big reaches in some cases, but, but the Democrats could conceivably have a really strong, young sort of batch of, of newcomers on the national stage if – um, a bunch of things break right for them in some of these Senate races. And, and you know, already a lot of things have broken right because it, some, some of them have just like, um, you know, they've managed to get real dimwit opponents so far. And um, who knows how that's going to end. But uh, Democrats have uh, in some really key states, I mean, beginning with you know Arizona, with Mark Kelly, um, Tim Ryan in Ohio, Fetterman in Pennsylvania, go down the list, have run some pretty good races so far. And um, I don't know. I, I think there's great, uh, to use a terrible Silicon Valley word, great scalability potential there. Oh, I thought you were going to say disruption. Oh, that would be disruption. No, I'm I not think I think that. that's worse than scalability. Yeah, it's true. No, you know what? I think the word disruption needs to be disrupted. Okay. I'm going to let that one slide. All right, fine. You have not mentioned a number of people, and one person you have not mentioned, and I want you to respond, is the sitting vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. Yeah, uh, I haven't mentioned her. Um, yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, I think there's she's in a real slump. I mean, she doesn't seem to be able to reverse whatever. I mean, you know, she's got a tough job. I mean, tough job both in that, Know, a lot of difficult things sort of land on her desk in the in the way that the vice presidency can be a tough job and an unpleasant sort of bunch of assignments. But um, she um, doesn't seem to have made much of a mark and does not seem to have much of an ability to reverse um, the the sort of lukewarm opinions that have sort of coalesced around her from from the beginning. And I think part of that, frankly, started when she was running for president. And that was sort of a disastrous foray for her. And and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the best sort of practice to sort of be the the principal. So I don't know. Maybe she can't turn Well why was it disastrous? She Well she didn't make she, it to she, she, Iowa well, caucuses yes, but, for one. Well, because you know, she did the math and thought she didn't have a path. And maybe she also analyzed the situation and thought, if I do this with some, I'm making this up, but I'm, I'm making a case for her. And she managed herself with some grace at the end of the, of the journey, maybe she would be selected to be the vice president. And so if that's the analysis, yeah, it worked. that was pretty, pretty wily and smart, no? Yeah, maybe, I guess. I mean, that's, but I also think that she, um, look, she, she ran, I thought she ran a bad race. I don't think, I mean, I thought she had all kinds of potential 
Um, she had all kinds of, um, you know, rep- she had a great reputation for being a really compelling and charismatic um, communicator, and it never really took hold. How much of the ability of a vice president to make a mark depends upon A, the relationship with the president, and B, how the president sort of frames the role and job of the vice president. So I'll give you a hypothetical question first that maybe helps to answer that question. Dick Cheney, um, who is probably not beloved by a lot of listeners here, was a strong and influential vice president. Some say too strong and too influential. Would that have been possible but for the nature of his relationship with George W. Bush? Or would he have been that way with any Republican president in the White House. I, I think it, it's all about the president. It's all about the sort of the level of responsibility that the president's ready to bestow upon the vice president. So I, I think, and people that. perceive that. So, so people perceived. I think that Bill Clinton gave. I was younger in those days. I wasn't, by the way. Gave gave respect and substance to Al Gore, right? Fair. Yeah, I think so. And the same was true with George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. Fair. Fair. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there was a mutual respect and bro relationship, despite some hiccups every once in a while between Barack Obama and uh, Joe Biden. Am I forgetting any recent presidents and vice well, Mike, presidents? Mike Pence and Donald Trump. Oh, well, he was good until the hanging. <laughs> the, the threatened he hanging. Was, he was yeah. good. Um, yeah, that's true. You know, he was. So, so is it Joe? So, uh, you know, I, I'm asking questions. I have no view here. Yeah, you're I'm just neutral. asking the questions, Pre. I'm neutral. Mm-hmm. But are, do you mean to say or do you think that Kamala Harris's woes, given her talents and given her abilities and given, you know, what the talent scouts were saying about her and thinking about her, that her failure to break through and appear strong is a function of the Joe Biden White House and his staff? Partly. I, I think partly. I think, you know, I mean, in fairness, I mean, the Biden White House has had really, really big headaches to, to deal with. I mean, I, I think you know, it's interesting because Ron Klain, who is Joe Biden's chief of staff, um, is steeped in the vice president's office. I mean, he was Biden. She was vice president Biden's chief of staff. Um, he was Gore's chief of staff. I mean, he's been, you know, he's, he knows that office as well as probably anyone in history. You know, a little known, a little known fact. Mm. Ron Klain was Woodrow Wilson's vice president. Unbelievable, right? Did you know that? I don't he was know the vice president that. or was he the chief of staff to, to <laughs> vice president to Woodrow Wilson? All right, who's the vice president? The joke pre- is better. The joke, I think the joke works better if he's the vice president because it's obviously- Vice president Ron Klain. Um, unclear, but I'll, I'll, you know what? I'll accept that. And, and by the way, Woodrow Wilson, problematic. Yeah, I should have picked a different. I should have picked like Van Buren. I don't know. Now, I will say this. I, this I'm is, workshopping the joke, okay? I'm going to give a shout out to a guy named Joel Goldstein, who I don't know if he's a listener of yours, but he is the world's foremost authority on vice presidents. And I know Joel because I wrote a story on him for the New York Times style section, Sunday style section, in 2012. And I always thought it was funny that a expert on the vice presidency existed and he was a law professor. (laughs) I remember saying to him and he played along from the beginning. I said, Joel, you know, you're just waiting around for the expert on presidents, the presidential historian to die. So the (laughs) vice presidential historian can take over. Um, But anyway, so Joel Goldstein just played around and he played along with, with my bit and he, I, Always interview him whenever there is a matter of running mate or vice presidential um, uh, import. And I always call Joel Goldstein. So, Joel, if you're listening, um, we're talking about 
your ilk, the vice presidents. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Mark Leibovich after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I want to ask you a question about Joe Biden, and then I want to talk about some of these races that you've alluded to and some others. The narrative with Joe Biden, when he was sunk, he was done, he wasn't getting anything done. And I've heard a lot of people opine about this. I'd like to know what you think about that. Should he be hailed as a legislative master? Is this going to help the Democrats in 2022? What do you make of the last few weeks in the shift? about perceptions of Biden, and and he's ticked up in the polls a number of percentage points. I, I think it's been positive. I think it's been extremely, um, you know, it's been materially great for his presidency. I think it's reflected in the polls. I also think what's been helpful to him, you know, frankly, and this might sound reductive, but um, Donald Trump's been in the news for the last three weeks and not for the right reasons. I mean, one was the, one was the raid or the search or whatever you want to call it. That was, what, three pretty much three weeks ago now. And, um, as, as usual, you know, former president Trump has not exactly, um, you know, used this opportunity, used this crisis, whatever you want to call it to bring glory upon himself. So I think that that has redounded well to the current president. The more Trump is in the news, the better that is for Joe Biden. Oh, no question about it. And before we get to particular races that I'd love you to talk about, what is your view of the role that the reversal of Roe v. Wade will play in the midterms? Seems like it's played a huge role already. I mean, just as far as what's reflected in polling, what's been reflected in some of these early, um, you know, primary races and, and, you know, the election in Kansas that that's gotten a great deal of attention. When Roe was overturned, did you expect there to be significant political blowback or do you think that was um, overstated? I- I thought there would be some. I, I just didn't think it would be what it seems to be, which seems pretty, um, pretty, you know, pretty substantial. I mean, maybe more so than certainly Republicans have bargained for. And if you sort of look at their rhetoric and how they're trying to dial back some of their more extreme um, anti-abortion positions in the past, I mean, they seem to be quite, um, quite concerned about it too. And the polls would seem to bear that out. So, um, yeah, be careful what you wish for. You know, maybe the uh, 
maybe this is the, the the dog catching the car or something, but no, they don't seem to know how to talk about this. And it does seem to be a potentially, you know, real, it's a cliche, but a game changer for this election. Do you detect a difference in tone from the White House? A little bit more combative, a little bit more pugilistic, a little bit more um, snarky, I guess, on the yeah. social media? Do you, is that is that a real thing? I think it is. I mean, I, I don't know if they you know, replaced some people in the communication staff or this is a conscious. Well, they effort. brought in, they brought in the social media. Um, yeah. From New Jersey. Zarina from New Jersey. Yeah. Everyone terrific. likes her. People, yeah. think she's getting good early reviews. All right. Let's talk about some races. I'm going to pick states at random. Okay. Ohio. There's a Senate race that pits Democrat Tim Ryan against Republican J.D. Vance. First question, how good a candidate is Tim Ryan? So far, it seems great. Um, Tim Ryan is a, I I mean, he was a good recruit for Democrats. He ran for president. He's been a pretty prominent member of Congress for a while. He's pretty conservative. He has working class class credibility, um, you know, in the same way that that Sherrod Brown, who's the other Democratic senator. um, But Sherrod Brown, like nobody would, do people say Sherrod Brown is anything other than a liberal? Um. They say he's a working class guy who can talk to traditional Democrats and independents in Ohio, which is uh, what you need in Ohio, obviously. But, but national progressives would say Sherrod Brown is one of us, correct? They would. Oh, absolutely. There was a lot right. of- he's not, he's, not a, he's not Joe Manchin. No. Or, or some other type who, who has to tack to the right, right to win. How come he's the only guy who's a Democrat in Ohio who's able to do that? I don't know. I mean, Sherrod Brown has a pretty, I mean, he's got a, a pretty established style in Ohio that is pretty well suited to Ohio. He's, is it just people like the guy? People like the guy. He's been around long enough for people to like him, to know him. He's kind of a give him hell type. Um, he doesn't apologize. And and look, it's possible even in a, a trending conservative state or, you know, red state like Ohio for people like that to, to really sort of you know, be pretty safe politically. I, now, I don't know if that'll be true in two years when he's on the ballot again, but right. But I think Ryan is close enough to that profile that, that he yeah. could actually sort of follow the same formula. Normal, is there anything, I'm just making this up, yeah. this uh, doctrine in my head. Hmm. Is there anything to the theory of people in a state like divided government in the form of one senator from one party and one senator from the other party? Or did I just make up some nonsense? Um, I think so. I think some people, I, mean, I don't know if it's like, all right, we have two senators. One should be a Democrat. One should be no, a not, Republican. No, not so intentional, but the right. idea is, yeah, we're like kind of a I, open-minded state and we like the one guy and we like the other guy. I think, um, I don't know if people think that <laughs> deeply about, you know, what the sort of makeup of, of their delegation is sort of up and down the ballot. But I do think that people like theoretically the idea in many cases of divided government just as a just as a check and balance. I think it, ideally there would be two sane parties that could work together better than the two existing parties are working together now. And I think, you know, many Americans would sort of opt for that if the choices seemed viable. I think in, you know, many, in many states and many races, the choices don't seem viable, though. So I think it's the case that certain Republican campaign committees have dedicated in recent days tens of millions of dollars to Ohio to shore up J.D. Vance. I think taking some of those resources out of Arizona, where Mark Kelly is doing very well, do you agree that that's a sign that Tim Ryan is a big threat? I, I think Tim Ryan's a big threat. I, I think um, I think J.D. Vance is a big threat to lose. 
Um, you know, if you're a Republican, he's a likable guy. You think people, love, people <laughs> of the state of Ohio like JD Vance? You know, so far it hasn't shown. He, he hasn't. He hasn't. Um, it doesn't seem to like the electorate of Ohio doesn't seem to have warmed up to JD Vance to the degree that um, maybe he would have hoped. I mean, you know, JD Vance has some real issues. He hasn't come out much in public. Um, he hasn't seemed a natural candidate by any stretch of the imagination. And, and well, he was a reasonable person who wrote a best-selling book mm-hmm. called Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. Um, very good writer too, by the way. Very good writer. Smart. Uh, Yale Law School. Yeah. Not elite. Not elite at all, that guy. No, no. no. And said, in, in my view, because I'm on a, in a particular dimension on this, mm-hmm. reasonable things about Donald Trump. Yeah. Very, very critical of Donald Trump. Did a complete about face. And that, you know, so so this, this is going back to your book, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. The price of submission for J.D. Vance, right, was getting the nomination. Right. Exactly. And saying things. He got a rebate. It didn't cost him anything. He, oh, okay. So he won the nomination, but but yeah, but he, I don't know. I, I I think that there is a great psychic price. He will probably not ever be invited to give the commencement address at Yale Law School. I, that I don't, that I think is a price he is willing to pay. Correct. Um, but is no price at all, which is no price at all. But I, I also think that, I don't know. I, I, I think that there is a psychic price to pay when you get elected saying something you 180 degrees do not believe. Yeah, but that's, you know, and it's great that you, th- I mean, I I think lying is a I used big, to think that too. I, I, you don't think that there's a psychic price. I think for some people, I, th- I think maybe it's, I don't think it's hard for Donald Trump. No. I think Donald Trump pays no psychic price for his shamelessness. No. And his hypocrisy and his lying and his bullying, he pays zero. No. Now you're saying that he's at the core of terrible on this point and there are concentric circles around him. And I don't know how far out some of those circles mm-hmm. uh, you'd put people in, but the people who are not as uh, unself-aware as Donald Trump or as narcissistic as Donald Trump, they ultimately, uh, between them and their spiritual advisor, experience psychic pain. I, I think so. <laughs> You know, again, I can't speak to their psychic landscapes, but first of all, I think Donald Trump, I, he is at the center of the concentric circle. So you have yes. to sort of view him, you know, differently from those on the out, you know, on the, on the outer rings of the concentric circles, right? So Donald Trump benefits from the price to, of submission that others pay. He just sort of laps up the, uh, whatever others give to him while they sort of pay the price, the psychic price of their own dignity, their own pride, their own reputations, their own self-respect, whatever you want to say. So yeah, Donald Trump is the beneficiary of this. Now, what's interesting is again, as someone who's interviewed all these people, there is a level of misery around them that I have detected over and over and over again, which indicates to me a price of submission. Again, the, the, Level of well, that makes me feel better. I feel better. It, you know, I, I it should because when and you, but you can see it on TV when you see Marco Rubio, when you see Kevin McCarthy, when you see Elise Stefanik on TV trying to say things they clearly don't believe about how great a person Donald Trump is. I mean, do any of them look happy doing it? No, they look extremely miserable. And that Donald Trump doesn't look happy when he's saying it about himself. And yet I don't think he experiences psychic pain. No, but I think there's a level of misery there that is of a different, that is of different um, order that we can't even begin to understand because there's a, there's well, a, my favorite fact, not my favorite fact, but I think the most unusual fact about Donald Trump, we've talked about it before. He doesn't laugh. I think there's no documentation. There's no living witness 
who will testify that they've ever seen this 70-something-year-old man ever laugh. I find that remarkable. You know, it's interesting. A uh, little little story from, from my journalism world. Um, right after Trump won in 2016, um, my editor at the then New York Times Magazine said, we should write about Al Franken now because he was then the senator. You know, the sort of um, the union of, of comedy and celebrity and politics has finally come to full fruition. And so I spent a lot of time with then Senator Franken. And he was the one that pointed out to me for the first time, Here's the thing about Trump that makes me nervous. The guy has never laughed. Yeah. Look it up. Well, I agree Look with that. The, and and it's true. It's And when he does laugh, occasionally he'll sort of let out a little chuckle. It's an evil little chuckle. He'll say, <laughs> and it's like, it's not real. It's just weird. <laughs> it's a weird thing. That's like a horse noise. It is like a horse noise. I don't. Right, let's, let's, let's move on to some other states. And other animals. And other animals. Pennsylvania. We've already mentioned that in passing. Yeah. Fetterman. On the Democratic side, you got Fetterman. On the Republican side, you have New Jersey resident <laughs> Dr. Oz. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen there? I mean, it looks like Fetterman's running a great race, except that you know he had a stroke, so that kind of sucked. But he, <laughs> he, he putting that aside, Thanks, I mean, doctor. He's, he seems he's. Hell, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, you know, he, he's. I'm not a medical doctor. I've not treated. Um, possible Senator Fetterman myself, but he, um, no, he, he seems to have run a very good race. Uh, Dr. Oz doesn't seem to know what he's doing and he's running the, you know, Fetterman's people seem to be running circles around. Dr. You think Dr. Oz. Oz got overly beat up for the crudite? I, I bet you have plates of crudite all the time, Mark. I like you from the district. I feel, I feel judged. I, I, first of all, <laughs> I learned, I, I thought it was pronounced crudite. I really did, which is oh, really pathetic on my oh. part. You didn't. You knew. You're you're a you're an elitist. Wow. Okay. Well, aren't you? So, I don't mean that in have, a bad way. I'm going to have some whores divorce right now before <laughs> dinner. Uh, actually, I guess crudites can be whores divorce. No, he, he did. He get unfairly beat up. Sure, but he put himself in his position. If you're not good at computers, I think you're you're a ludite. Oh, that's that's a Am really I right? great joke. I you know what. <laughs> That is a okay, really now, great now, now, now you're mocking the host. No, I'm not. I'm the celebrating host. the host. No, I don't think you are. So <laughs> Fetterman, he, he doesn't, can you, for people who are not following the race, hmm. he's an unusual sort of figure for a Democrat. Absolutely. Yeah. First right? of all, he, he's, uh, he's eight foot nine or something. Right? He's very tall. <laughs> he's, he's not that great tall. Great stature. Great stature. stature. No, he's, he's really tall. He's like six, eight, six, nine, something like that. Um, anyway, he's an interesting guy. Um, and he has, uh, he won a fairly tough primary. I mean, there was a lot of momentum towards, um, his opponent who is now escaping. He was Western Pennsylvania congressman won in a special election. Uh, this is bothering me. Come on. What's his name? Uh, Connor Lamb beat Connor Lamb in a tough primary and, um, yeah, no. And, and he drew a, a pretty bad opponent so far. So, uh, I'm really interested in learning more about John Fetterman. Let's talk about Georgia. Two races, the governor's race. Stacey Abrams has a lot of fans among our listeners. What's going to happen in the governor's race there? I mean, uh, Abrams seems to be down in the polls. Um, she, you know, that race is, I mean, what's interesting is that Brian Kemp, who was a really, uh, you know, he, he, he had a lot people, he was a very polarizing figure in Georgia, still is. Um, had a really tough race about against Stacey Abrams a few years ago, won narrowly. There were all kinds of 
um, accusations of all kinds of irregularities around voting. Um, but, you know, Kemp sort of turned back Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump had this vendetta against Brian Kemp and um, Kemp managed to get the nomination anyway. And um, but no, I mean, Stacey Abrams is a remarkably talented politician. Um, she's great to listen to. I don't know if you've ever. But had uphill. Her. No, I have. I've met her. No, she's she's tremendous. she's tremendous. She's tremendous. Yeah. But yes, but uphill, uphill, you think. Uphill. So Absolutely, yeah. what does that mean, if anything, for the Senate race that people are looking at that pits Democrat Raphael Warnock against Herschel Walker? Well, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, Brian Kemp is a much stronger candidate than Herschel Walker. I mean, Herschel Walker on paper, at least, you know, this athletic hero from University Well, he was, you know, I was explaining to my kids and, um, you know, I, I was not a, uh, a monumental sports fan, but everyone knew Herschel Walker. He was a huge figure in the country. And a lot of people remember that and may not know much else about him. Is that fair? Absolutely. I mean, he's arguably one of the two or three most iconic athletes in, in Georgia. I mean, he's African-American and in a state that has a very large um, black electorate. I mean, obviously, me and most of them have been Democrat and have supported and probably will support Raphael Warnock, who's the incumbent. Um, you know, I, I assume that he'll peel off some support. Um, but, you know, Warnock's an incumbent. Um, Abrams is not an incumbent. And, and Warnock is, you know, he's actually had an interesting couple of years. He's been uh, you know, he's, he's spent a lot of time in the state. He won a pretty high profile race, um, a couple of years ago to, to, you know, to get into the Senate. So I don't know. I mean, I think he, it's his to lose at this point, you know, I think largely because the Republicans just didn't nominate a better candidate and Herschel Walker has been a disaster so far. If I had to guess, I think Warnock's going to win that race. Um, partly just because I think he's a much better candidate and he's the incumbent. And 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 also, look, Georgia is changing really, really fast. And I mean, yes, Biden is struggling in Georgia, like he has been in a lot of sort of swing states. But uh, Georgia does not like Donald Trump. I mean, not only did they not vote for him in 2020, but I think a lot of Republicans and independents are pretty pissed off at him over basically him losing those two Senate seats for Republicans to begin with. I mean, that was just a disaster um, in the post-election period in 2020. Yeah, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, but when people were criticizing Biden and and when they think about the reversal and the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, infrastructure, and some other things that, you know, even while they're thinking about and criticizing the people they don't like, like Joe Manchin mm -hmm. and Kirsten Cinema, they should really be spending some minutes thinking about Georgia. Absolutely. And how America would be very different. A hundred percent. If those races didn't swing the way they swung, right? And and Georgia is going to be important again. I mean, I, one thing I, I think that Republicans who don't like Donald Trump and, and are, have been afraid to say, because I mean, they don't want to get on the wrong side of him, is that Donald Trump has just been a monumental loser for for his party. I mean, he lost, he's the first Republican or the first president in a hundred years to lose the White House, the House and the Senate for his party in a single term. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of you know distinctions like that that he has that people don't point out enough. Let's do one more state. You already mentioned it. Maybe we can do it very quickly because I think it's pretty clear what's going to happen there. And that's Arizona, which we mentioned a second ago. Mark Kelly, very strong, 10 points up in a poll I saw recently, Yeah, uh, who is obviously, for people who don't realize, uh, the husband of uh, Gabby Giffords, yeah. who's a member of Congress and was shot in a tragic incident. What makes for his success? It, are, are, are astronauts who are articulate hmm. guaranteed successful political careers? It certainly helps. 
It certainly helps. Because <laughs> astronauts are super cool, and it's yeah. really not. Who doesn't dig? It's an not astronaut? partisan. Yeah, no, I yeah, I'd vote for an astronaut every time. I will say this. I mean, as a non-astronaut, I, I feel like I have been at a great disadvantage in public life, you know, whenever I do venture into public life, which is, um, you know, probably will be increasingly rare after this podcast. Well, it's it's a particular brand if you mm. don't screw it up, which what, is... Astronaut or non-astronaut? Astronaut. Mm. Because non-astronaut has a lot of sub-brands, I think. It's like mo- <laughs> most, of, most of humanity. It's like the other nine billion. <laughs> That's true. Different you categories. You know, I'm going to go forward and run for office on the brand of non-astronaut, which is obviously <laughs> you know, easily you, understandable. You just want to divide us between astronauts and non-astronauts, Preet. I, there are two I kinds of people bring, in the world. I want to bring astronauts. us together. I want to bridge the gap. What about Liz Cheney run for the presidency? How does that change anything? I don't think she'll win. Um, I think, you know, especially in this Republican Party, I, I think what would be interesting about Liz Cheney as a candidate for president on the Republican side would just be she's like a nightmare for some of these people. I mean, you think Donald Trump wants to be on a debate stage with her? I mean, she, I think, as we've all seen, is a really good uh, asker of questions. She's great at speaking truths. She's got a level of contempt and genuineness in her um you know, just in her ability to sort of disparage everything that the Republican Party has become over the last few years that I think I don't think any Republican wants to see her up there. So I think she would provide an incredibly valuable service of truth telling. And, um, you know, I uh, for, for all those reasons, I think that the RNC and Trump and Trump's allies will do everything possible to keep her off a debate stage with Donald Trump. So uh, with respect, I'm going to disagree with my guest and suggest that because I used to have that thought with other matchups, that that is a significant overstatement of the contrast between an intelligent, articulate thinking person and and that person's opposite uh, in the form of Donald Trump. Because he has a methodology of dealing with facts and tough questions and preparation on the part of either a questioner or a debater that is really remarkable skill. And guys like you and me and people who think like us and have the political orientation we have, you know, throw stuff at the television mm. when Trump does his thing. And I know that in each of the debates, all the pundits said, and they were correct, that Hillary Clinton won. Yeah. But but not by a landslide no. per lots of people watching, including Republicans and a lot of independents. And the contrast that you and I see, because we have a particular point of view and respect a certain kind of intelligence and, and eloquence and, and reasonableness and logic, not everyone does. I, I fully agree with you. And, and I don't think Donald Trump would lose that race. But wouldn't you love to see the two of them going at it on a debate stage? You know, I, I would, except that I'm, not, I'm not just not sure how it will go. It's not like seeing two great gladiators go at it or, you know, whatever sport that's, you know, or the two best, you know, the number one and number two tennis seed playing each other in the U.S. Open you have, you have, it, it, this is an example that somebody gave once. You, you have, you know, the greatest chess grandmaster who, who comes prepared with a strategy and the other guy starts eating the pieces. Yes. That that's, I've heard that before. I still think it's fascinating. I think asymmetrical warfare is incredibly fascinating. I think, I, I, I don't think it's comfortable for either party, which itself I think would make for a great matchup. I mean, you, you see interviewers go after Trump and ask for facts and ask for some basis. And you know what Trump's, Trump says things like- He eats the pieces. That's what, that's what people are saying. That's what people are saying. It's maddening. What's the evidence? People are saying. That's what people, that's, that's the, and you know, because there's a time limit, 
because it's not a courtroom. I made this point before. I get it. I get it. You get you get away with it, and people think, yeah, he was tough, and he and you know he called someone a name. He's got like nine exit strategies hmm. for any perfectly crafted lawyerly gotcha or non gotcha question. He just does. Uh, you know. Maybe. I, I mean, yeah, I, I just don't think it makes him any more winning or likable. I, I, I think I think I w- what I would be curious to see, and this is why a face-to-face matchup would be a good environment for this, is like Liz Cheney taunting him, saying, Mr. President, go under oath. <laughs> just at some point, just like, why don't you ever speak under oath? You said you were going to talk to you know, Robert Mueller. You never talked to Robert Mueller. You said you were going to say that. You, you know, go under you, oath. Go under oath. Why doesn't your dad go under oath? We went to war in Iraq because of your dad. Your dad caused thousands. I mean, I'm just off the that. top of my head. Yes, he would do that. Yeah, and he will derail. And, and her fine point that, that Mark, you, you raised, and I think it's a very good one, it gets derailed because he's a gorilla. Um, not from the jungle, you know, yeah. the other kind of gorilla. Yeah. And it, it just, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because he's not playing the same no, he's game not. that everyone else is. I don't think he's the 800-pound gorilla that he was a few years ago. I don't think right. his, his tricks would work as so well. So you're unimpressed by the tricks of Trump? No. DeSantis, well, yeah, I am and the un- others. Um, yeah. Uh, but the question is not whether you're unimpressed by them. Right. I'm not a Republican primary voter. Yeah. Is DeSantis another version of Trump or is he just something different altogether? He's something different altogether. I just, I don't know if it's something that, you know, people are going to want. Do any final words? I've kept you past, oh, past um, the allotted hour. No. Do you want to um, explain, you want to explain? Myself, my, what I'm talking about, anything of, no, I mean, not really. I, I, um, that thing you said about, um. The why not? That, that was a great moment. I, I hope you keep that. I hope that doesn't. I'm going to send you a bill. Uh, you should. No, it's great. It was really, it was very clear-sighted and very, um, I, I loved, I loved when you did that. Because it, sh- it showed some paying attention to you. People like being paid attention to. I, they do. They want to be seen and heard. Yeah. Even if it, even if it's through mockery. <laughs> if you do, if you do, if, if someone does a good impression of you, that's, that's flattering. Oh, it's devastating. But it's also, I mean, I don't mean like Chris Rock. I mean, I mean yeah, right. I mean, a friend of yours. Yeah, my daughter. Who's paid enough attention. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure that they have much to mock about their father. No, they totally do. As, as any, you know, as any my, father my would. Kids, my kids too. My, kid, my kids think I'm an idiot. Absolutely. Mostly. Um, no, I will say this though. I mean, th- this has been a tremendous podcast and I, I, I'm Thank thrilled you. to be on it. And I really, I, you know, I, I've been on a lot of them now and this was, this is right up the there. The best one. This is I the know, best it's one. Right up there. It's, well, right I, up there. I don't want to insult future podcasters that might want to have me on. No, this has been great. I mean, I, I love talking to you, Breed. We'll do it again. I hope so. Mark Leibovich, number one New York Times bestselling author of this town. Thank you for your servitude. Donald Trump's Washington and the price of submission, which as we have discussed today, wasn't that high a price for many of them. Thanks for being on the show, sir. <laughs> but it was also a number one bestseller. Let's keep our eye on the price. <laughs> which is all there. that matters. It's all Absolutely. that matters. Thanks for having me on, Preet. This was great. Thanks, Mark. My conversation with Mark Leibovich continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider.
I want to end the show this week by sharing a story that I found truly inspiring, and I hope you will too. The story, as reported by the New York Times, is about a group of women who grew up in a pre-Title IX world where they didn't have the opportunity to play organized sports, but finally got the chance to do so. For those of you who aren't familiar, Title IX is a statute passed in 1972. It banned discrimination based on sex in federally funded educational programs. It applies to institutions like schools, museums, and libraries. Among other things that it accomplished, Title IX opened up the world of organized sports to women and girls all over the United States. In fact, according to the National Center for Education Statistics, the participation rate of high school girls in sports has increased 11-fold since Title IX was passed. In this particular story, the New York Times headed to Adult Soccer Fest, a yearly tournament held in Tennessee specifically for adults, with players aged all the way up to their 70s. Teams travel in from all over the country to lace up their cleats and compete. And for many of the women participants, the tournament provided their first opportunity to play soccer on a team. One of the women quoted in the story, now in her late 60s, said that she felt inspired to start playing by watching her own kids play team sports. Another mentioned the friendship she has made through the game, telling the Times, I don't find that in any other part of my life. These women didn't get the chance to play organized sports growing up, even though they wanted to. And now they're able to give it a real go. And that they did. To me, this story serves as a reminder that it's never too late to correct the institutional wrongs of the past and to try something new that you've always wanted to. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Mark Leibovich. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.